Morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Rosenbaum. Uh, my, I'm best known as the children's ministry director's husband. <laughs> so you can call me that. Uh, we're going to be reading Proverbs 1, uh, verse 20 through 33. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of that naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Thanks, Andrew. In 2005, uh, I left <clears throat> Oklahoma City uh, to pursue um, my calling as an evangelist, and, uh, and to do that, I, I went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and, uh, and while we were there, I got involved in several evangelistic organizations, and uh, we, we would do a state, um, around two or three states in the area, we would do large crusades, and we would... Uh, do a lot of evangelism in a lot of different places, and I was on several teams. We did uh, Billy Graham uh, follow-up training and, and through some of those uh, kind of crusades. And and I remember uh, sort of in my third year, the summer of 2007, uh, really uh, coming into my own where I wasn't necessarily doing crusade things, but I had a different idea. Uh, and my idea was, what if uh, what if we prayer walk an entire city uh, for a period of months, and then um, all leading up to one week where instead of inviting a lot of people to one tent or one crusade kind of a meeting, what if we uh, prayer walked and prepared and then we just did a full week of evangelism in five or six different varieties, door-to-door evangelism, uh, if we did uh, marketplace evangelism, if we did block party evangelism, if we did a few concerts and a few preaching events, and if we did some big events, and then if we did street preaching, and and what would it look like if uh, 50 evangelists who are typically used to uh, standing and preaching a message, if we train them and engage them and unleash them in a different part of a city, and, and we just fervently tried to blanket an entire city. And I, I was working through that, and I pitched some of these ideas to some of the evangelists that I was working with, and, uh, and we found a, a willing um, church, a church plant called Living Grace Church by a friend of mine named Jackie Perkins in Central City, um, Kentucky. We did it in, uh, in a county called Muhlenberg County, and, and it was better known as Methenburg County. 
Uh, it had the highest meth rate in the state of Kentucky. Uh, it was completely destroyed by drugs, um, not just meth, but also heroin and other places, other things. Uh, it was a county um, tearing itself apart. And Central City was one of the, uh, as the name refers, a central part of that. So we spent six months <clears throat> in preparation for one week. It was dumb. I called it F5, like a tornado or storm the city or something like that. I had all these goofy uh, pop, you know, uh, <clears throat> plug kind of graphics that I just picked up. They were, it was all kind of silly, but the heart behind it <clears throat> was that the need was so great. Uh, the burden of the pastor was so great. The condition of many of the churches in that city uh, was in such a ragged state. There were many pastors having affairs. There were many others who weren't preaching the gospel. The condition of the church was down. The worldliness in the city and in the community uh, was terrible. Drugs and all these other things were epidemics. And so from February of 2007 leading up to this summer, we prayer walked zones of the city quietly, just months in advance, walking around the city, asking God to pour out His Spirit, preparing for that. I would spend long weekends with Jackie and his team preparing. Uh, we trained for service projects, door-to-door -door evangelism, marketplace ministry, block parties, worship gatherings, crusade-style youth services, and street preaching. We bought uh, 3,000 tracks, and it was our intention to have a, uh, a gospel piece of literature for every resident in the town area. All of this was driven by the idea that we were gripped by the reality that the gospel is the way to life and that every person needed to hear the gospel message in love and with urgency and with earnestness. When we look at Proverbs 1 verse 20, it says that wisdom cries aloud in the street in the marketplace, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And she goes through this entire, um, she goes through this entire process where she's engaging people. And you can think of wisdom like a street preacher. You can think of wisdom depicted in this passage with uh, a sense of urgency shouting to everybody, trying to get their attention, screaming, follow me, heed me, listen to me, take heed, be careful. It's as though the words turn or burn or repent or perish or a poster uh, could have been affixed around her neck as she delivers her urgent message. Those, uh, the urgency and the earnestness with which we approached Central City, Kentucky in the summer of 2007, the, the deep desire that we hoped that we would see people come to faith in Christ and give their life to Christ uh, was not realized in that week. I'll tell you how things ended up later, but, uh, but there was very little, there was very little, um, evidence that we had ever done anything on the actual week that all of those things culminated. It was a kind of a discouraging week. It was a bit of a letdown. And I imagine that as wisdom cries out, 
There is also a letdown as the simple ones and the scoffers and the fools and just the people go about their own way and ignore wisdom's cries. So let's get back into the text here. Uh, Let's go through these verses so we can better understand what the point of this passage is. You can see here that wisdom is personified. As you read this, you get the impression that wisdom is not just uh, pro tips on how to live your life or um, good advice that you give to somebody. That's not why we memorize Proverbs, is just, just to be able to sound wise and give good advice. You see here that wisdom is personified. It's a person. Sounds like a person, doesn't it? Listen to some of the words that describe wisdom in these verses. Verse 20, she. Verse 20, raises her voice. Verse 21, she positions herself. Verse 21, she cries and she speaks. Verse 22, she's persuading. Uh, Verse 22, she's engaging people. Uh, Verse uh, 22, she teaches She rebukes in verses 23 and 25. She makes a promise in verse 23, uh, and in uh, uh, a promise of the Spirit, and a promise of a revelation of her word in verse 23. She calls in verse 24. She counsels in verse 25. When no one listens, in verse 26, she will laugh and she will mock. In verse 26, she refuses to answer. She has a personality. You can see it here. Verse 28, she hides. Verse 28, she gives them over to consequences of their own behavior. In verse 29 through 31, she says, If you would listen to me, you will dwell secure and be at ease without fear of disaster. In verses 32 through 33, wisdom is not tips on how to live a better life. Wisdom is personified. And through the entire course of Scripture, The person wisdom that Solomon is describing here is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the person wisdom. In Luke 11.31, Jesus said himself, In the judgment days, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon's wisdom is here. Jesus equating Solomon's wisdom with himself, saying that he is greater than that wisdom of Solomon. In 1 Corinthians 1.24 and in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it's further put to it, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So you might be thinking to yourself, wait, Gibson, wisdom is a person. And if it's the person of Jesus, why is Jesus and wisdom a woman in Proverbs and a man in the New Testament? Is this meant to confuse us? Uh, What about Proverbs chapter 8, when wisdom is attributed as a created something that God possessed before creating, but used as a co-creator through uh, the course of creation. Uh, How is that all possible? Um, And how do we understand the woman wisdom in Proverbs and Jesus, the fulfillment of godly wisdom in the rest of Scripture? Let me help you understand this and get a grasp on it. 
Number one, Solomon is teaching his son. It has a context and it has um, a genre that we need to understand. Solomon is teaching his son using a poetic form of literature, a device called personification. Personification is simply used to get the reader's attention, and it also helps to make a concept approachable and desirable. In literary terms, what we see here is the opportunity to take an abstract idea like wisdom and to cast it as a person or a living thing. And he personifies wisdom as a woman because he's talking to a young son and he's saying things like, um, this is the woman that you need to pursue. And he's going to say in a little while in Proverbs 1-9, through this is the woman you need to avoid. Now don't get confused by the gender distinctions there. Because in the same way that Proverbs 7 and 6 describe an adulterous woman, we all understand that it's very... Um, much the same in reality, there's an adulterous man. There's an adulterous man and he's just as wicked as the adulterous woman. Uh, The personification of wisdom as a woman is just a literary technique. And we do this all the time. We hear things in our culture like Mother Earth or Lady Liberty or Lady Justice, the one who wears the blindfold and carries a scale. Sometimes we, some people, I don't do this, um, personify their cars and give it a name and you know make it like a person and uh, we use this when we're taking uh, teaching our kids to drive you know take it easy on her kind of you know personifying and making our our things um, more lifelike or more human like attributing to them a human quality and it, it does something in our mind psychologically it helps us to embrace an abstract concept and machines, uh, and to make them a little bit more like us. We do that all the time. Solomon is simply using that technique. Don't push this into meaning that there's some sort of gender fluidity nonsense in Scripture. There's not. The second thing that you need to understand about this uh, woman wisdom is that the Hebrew word for wisdom is a feminine noun. And feminine nouns take on feminine attributes. That's not saying that Jesus was a woman. That's not saying that Solomon had, uh, Solomon had no idea that Jesus would come and fulfill the wisdom of God as part of his revelation and a part of his eternal identity. Since the Hebrew word for wisdom, hakmah, uh, is feminine, the personification of w- lady wisdom is a lady. Hebrew nouns are classified by grammatical gender, And this is indicated by the presence or absence of certain consonant endings. You understand English grammar and those kinds of things. So with that in mind, now that we kind of have an understanding on what woman wisdom is and why it's personified in that way, let's get back into the text. And the text divides really nicely into two parts. Um, There are two two parts uh, in this thought. And the two parts, they're also consistent to our scripture. They are the blessing of of knowing the person wisdom and the curses for rejecting the person wisdom. The blessing of knowing wisdom and the curses for rejecting the person wisdom. It's really easy to see. You find that at the introduction to the covenant. There are promises if you are obedient to the covenant and there are curses if you disobey the covenant. Uh, There are consequences for uh, rejecting Jesus as well as consequences for embracing Jesus. So this sort of duality is not... 
uh, unique to this passage. It's common throughout Scripture. So let's get into the first part. What are the blessings of knowing wisdom? Let's, let's look back at verses 1 through 23 and listen to uh, what Jonathan Aiken describes as a street preacher. Wisdom cries out loud in the streets. In the marketplace, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Now just notice where she resides. Wisdom goes to the people. Wisdom is crying out in marketplaces and in the streets and in the city gates. Those were places where the average person would have encountered her invitation. Coincidentally, like we learned last week, it's also where the rival woman set up her place to cry out. Uh, the, 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 the loose person uh, is walking through the streets looking for someone to ensnare. So there are rival invitations Rival invitations to people. Listen to me, says wisdom, and uh, folly says, come my way as well. And so we have to navigate this decision-making as they cry out. Wisdom doesn't hide herself in a building or in an academy or in a higher learning institution or something in some library somewhere. Wisdom is available and accessible. It's not dependent on your educational level or your highest grade completed or anything like that. Wisdom is available for each of us. Wisdom is a person that invites us to know Him intimately. But listen to what else wisdom does. Wisdom addresses someone. She's crying out and she's addressing three people in verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? Uh, I brought um, one of the books I've been using to study. It's uh, Tim Keller. It's a devotional, a year of daily devotions in the book of Proverbs, God's, God's wisdom for navigating life. And listen to the way he describes the simple. He says, every sort of fool is out of touch with reality, but each one in a different kind of way. The simple fool, uh, known by the Hebrew word pethi, the simple, this kind of foolishness is gullibility. In Proverbs 14.50, the simple person believes anything. They are too easily led astray and too easily influenced. Like children, they may be over-impressed by the spectacular or the dramatic, or they may uh, desire approval too much and so be taken in by forceful personalities who feed them information. They will often support dictatorial leaders who promise them peace and prosperity. They can be intellectually lazy, very rarely reading books, studying things for themselves, often taking sound bites and uh, other uh, material rather than um, investigating two sides of a story and reading deeply about a topic. The simple do not want to ponder and think out the logic of a matter they are also likely to fall for get-rich-quick schemes. The simple can change. They can learn sense, Proverbs 19.25, but they can also inherit folly, Proverbs 14.18, and graduate into being full-blown fools. And he goes on and on. The simple are dangerous in that they're too easily and too naively willing to believe anything without investigating thoroughly in reputable places. So he had, the Lady Wisdom tells simple ones, stop 
loving your simple ways. In other words, she's inviting them deeper to a deeper level of knowledge and a uh, a leaving of this sort of simplicity. The second type of fool that is described here, uh, the second type of fool is a scoffer or a mocker. Listen to Keller's description. Uh, The mocker proves that it's not mental capacity that's the problem here. At the root of the mocker's character is actually a high pride that refuses to submit to anyone. Proverbs 21-24. The mocker's strategy is to debunk everything. To regard everything through a cynical and skeptical point of view, acting very smug and all-knowing in the process. Mockers, even though they're fools, appear to most eyes as though they were worldly wise and highly sophisticated. Some things, of course, deserve critique, and even satire. Even God mocks sometimes. However, according to Psalm 1-1, to sit in the company of mockers is to make cynicism and sneering a habitual response. Habitual mocking hardens your heart and poisons all of your relationships. To see through all things is not the same as to not see. And he goes on and on about the mocker. The mocker is a particularly dangerous kind of fool as well. And then the final one that he describes, uh, wisdom Solomon describes, is uh, fools who hate knowledge. Listen to this description. Throughout the book of Proverbs, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. In English, the word fool is not really an insult, but in Proverbs, Fools are people who are so habitually out of touch with reality that they make life miserable for themselves and for all those around them. Keller points out that we can't just treat our bodies any way that we want and expect to have good results in the same way that we can't treat people any way that we want to and expect to have good friends and a strong family. You can't just live a selfish life and expect the social fabric to remain intact. Fools, however do all these things, and therefore they sow and reap discord and destruction. Proverbs has a lot to say about the fool, but the fool at their heart is the person who does not believe. The person who has no faith. Psalm 53 once says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And for the rest of that psalm, it describes the wickedness with which they live. And it starts with not believing. So we heard a few weeks ago, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here we see wisdom hollering in the streets, hanging from light posts, yelling at the city gates, listen, listen, with an urgency and a compassion and a hope She's not cutting them off and saying, die in your foolishness. She's saying, listen to me. Come and spend time with me. Come and get to know me. Believe is the cry of wisdom. But listen to how they respond. Look at verses 24 through 31. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my rebukes or reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. 
When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I won't answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose, there it is, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is directly tied to faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout Scripture, a reverence and an awe and an understanding for who He is. And once we understand who He is, and we yield to Him in repentance and faith, then all the blessings of wisdom, all the blessings of uh, Scripture, all the promises of Scripture, all the promises of Ephesians 1, uh, that we are eternally chosen, that He was that He chose us in Him before the creation of the world, that He uh, gave us the Holy Spirit as an inheritance, to guaranteeing a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, all of those things we receive. But when we reject Him, we receive all of these curses of forsaking wisdom. There are consequences to hard-hearted stubbornness. We understand that every action has a consequence. Uh, Galatians says, you sow what you reap. There is a built-in consequence for sin. God will forgive you, uh, but, but there are also natural consequences that He also allows us to experience for our sin. He says, calamity... It will be terror. It will strike you like a storm. Calamity will come on you like a whirlwind. It will be full of distress and anguish. Hosea 8.7 says, They sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. It is uh, more than we want back when we sow to our sin and our flesh. And if we persist in that, one of the scariest realities of Scripture is that God says, I refuse to answer you. I will not be there when you call on me. As a matter of fact, if you persist in hard-hearted stubbornness, I will laugh at your calamity. This is troubling, isn't it? It's called the abandonment judgment of God. When I played um, sports in high school, I had a coach who told me, hey, don't be angry or upset if I'm riding you real hard. It just means I see something in you and I'm trying to develop it or I'm trying to pull it out. You should be really worried, though, if I stop coaching you hard. It means I've given up. It means that you're not teachable. It means that you're not engaged. It means that you're not putting into practice what I'm telling you. And it probably means you have a, a real future as the water boy. He used to say stuff like that. Or, or he would say something like, go find the band building. Or, you know, go run around... Uh, somewhere else, but not, uh, not here. If he stopped coaching us, it meant that he was withdrawing, and that was a form of his coaching judgment. I remember John MacArthur preaching a sermon at chapel and seminary called The Abandonment Judgment of God, and I'm going to quote some parts of his sermon here. It's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. If you want to look it up, it's by John MacArthur called The Abandonment Judgment of God. And he starts with acknowledging in Judges chapter 16 uh, what is likely one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture. In Judges chapter 16, you find Samson willingly and persistently and continuously ignoring the command of God and the call of God and the position of God in his life, continually stiff-arming God. And at some point, he just has been so loose with his position with God as a deliverer, 
or as a judge of Israel, that everything he does, God's right there to back him up. And so through perpetually ignoring God uh, and perpetually walking away from God, you understand what happened. Delilah is tempting him and asking him, what's the source of your strength? And he's, he keeps playing with her in all these ways. But finally, in verse uh, 16, chapter 16, verse 18, when Delilah saw that he told her all of his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come again, he told me all of his heart. So then all the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in her hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out just as I have at other times and I'll shake myself free. And this is the most terrifying verse, I think, in Scripture. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's, it's troubling to us to think. It's troubling for us to think that God would remove his presence. When we first came to Christ, when we first experienced him, we were enamored by his majesty and by his glory and by his greatness. And we, we were so enamored with who he was that, that we could spend hours in prayer and hours in scripture and hours in worship. And there just is a, a natural distance that comes uh, along with living life in the Christian life where we start, start to lose sight of the glory of God. And we start to fall back into our earthly ways. And, and just like the Israelites who were delivered by a great hand of God longed for Egypt, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a man returns to his sin. And when that happens, God will walk away from us. In Judges 10, 13 through 14, he says as a declaration, I will deliver you no more. Here in this Proverbs 1, I will laugh at your calamity. They will call upon me and I will be silent. I won't say a word. Hosea 4.17, experiencing the judgment of God, leave him alone. Let him go. Matthew 15, Jesus is describing a judgment and he says, just leave them alone. To be abandoned by God is a horrific thought. Acts 14.16 says, in the generations gone by, God permitted all the other nations to go their own way. But now in the gospel, the gospel goes out giving them a chance like Lady Wisdom, to hear and respond to his cry. But there comes a time when God will no longer strive with a person and he will deprive them of restraining grace. The greatest grace that God gives you is not to allow you to live to your heart's desires. Our flesh longs for something other at times and God's restraining grace is a mercy haven't you ever thanked God for the mistakes you didn't commit? The greatest testimony you can have is the one that says, I didn't do all those things. I remember hearing the testimony of a 90-year-old woman. She was a saint in a church. And she stood up and she gave her testimony and she said, many of you don't know that God delivered me from prostitution and from gambling and from a wild, reckless life of alcoholism and drug abuse. And everybody's eyes were just, what? We knew nothing about this. And she said, well, it's not because I did any of those things. God restrained me from those things. The restraining grace of God 
is the greatest mercy that he gives sinners. And the deprivation of restraining grace is a sign of divine judgment. Listen, this is important to understand because if you flip over to Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, we read in Scripture that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Let me just summarize that. God has made himself known to everybody. There is no one who doesn't have an inherent knowledge of God within their soul. He has imprinted it on them. And he's made himself known, verse 20, Romans chapter 1, for through his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Do you hear what that means? All creation points to a creator. All order points to an orderer. All art in the world points to an artist. All of these things design points to a designer. So God is saying, there's not a single human who's without excuse. He's made himself known to everybody, but because of their own sin, they suppress the truth about God. And if they continue to suppress it, look what happens in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so three times God gives them over. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity. Verse 24. Verse 26, God gives them over to homosexual passions. Of Romans 1.26, for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to the nature of things. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts and they will receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. But when they persisted, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Finally, God gave them over to what? A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What does that sound like to you? America, 1960 through 2020, right? We had a sexual revolution in the 1960s where we persistently refused to acknowledge God in our our morality. And so he gave us over to that into the 1980s and 90s and the 20s, where there's a a homosexual revolution to now there's a lack of just complete sense in the world. A debased mind can't reason itself out. It's the kind of thing that says that is a woman and that's a man, but now we're going to say it's not, and they're, they're, they're confused, and one can compete in one sport, and one can compete in another, and, and it's, just, it's just the world has lost its ever-loving mind. And this is part of the abandonment judgment of God. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedoms that they have demanded from God and are therefore self-enslaved. We have to understand this biblical worldview because this would be the worst time ever as a church to make this culture feel comfortable in its sin. It would be the worst time ever to embrace bad doctrine as God is trying to remove restraining grace 
in His mercy so they may come to their senses and cry out to a merciful God. How can we conclude this passage? Let's turn back to Proverbs. In Proverbs 1, I want you to notice in closing the urgency of the gospel language in this passage. Verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. She raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets. She cries out at the entrance of the city gates. She speaks and she's crying and telling them what? Look at verse 23. Turn at my rebuke. That's gospel language. Jesus came preaching, repent or perish. Wisdom cries out, return. Turn from my reproof. And then listen to the gospel language in verse 23. Then I will pour out my spirit to you and make my words known to you. What did Jesus say about the promise of the coming Holy Spirit? He will come and dwell within you and he will remind you of all my words, right? This is gospel language here. Uh, Verse 33 describes gospel language. of Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Who dwells secure? The ones who are in the hands of the Almighty, right? The one who no one can snatch them out of His hand. That's the one who dwells secure and will be at ease. Even in the midst of disaster, they will have no dread. That's the peace that comes with salvation. This is gospel urgency presented, shadowed early. Long before Jesus came preaching. But it's picked up by Jesus and His urgency is adapted and adopted by him just like it was for wisdom in Proverbs 1 in this passage. Jesus has this urgency. In Luke 19.10, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. In John 9.4, he, he tells his disciples, work and work hard while it's still day. In Matthew 9.35, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In Matthew 28.18-20, at the end of his resurrection, right before his ascension, he says, go, into all the world and make disciples. In John 7, 37-39, just before His crucifixion, the feast in Jerusalem, the whole city is swelling with crowds. And it says in John seven thirty seven, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you see the urgency? And the similarity between Jesus and wisdom, crying out and urging lost and foolish people to believe. Let me give you two application points. For the believer, if you count yourself as a Christ follower and a believer in Jesus, if you've repented of your sins and you've given your life to Jesus, it's time for you to grasp the seriousness of the hour. To take urgent action. Evangelical. Are you saying, Gib, you want me to be a street preacher? Um, Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like in your context. I don't know who God has burdened you for that is lost that you need to be crying out for. Uh, We had very little fruitfulness, as I mentioned, from our our evangelistic 
uh, work in Central City. It was very discouraging. We were urgent. We were earnest. We were biblical. We shared the gospel faithfully. And after that, we moved. We moved here in 2007, at the, in December of 2007. And we just, we just moved on. And I never really heard much about uh, any results until I got this message on April 16th, 2014. Gibson, you might not remember me. Uh, I was a young youth pastor at a church plant in Central City, Kentucky, called Living Grace. When you and several evangelists came and spent weeks with us years ago for something called a storm of evangelism or something like that. He said, I want you to know that your testimony has had a lasting impact on my life. And I need, I would love to reconnect with you sometime because we planted a church about a year ago here in Muhlenberg County and it's called the awakening. And God has poured out his spirit in such a way that we have seen over 230 people saved and baptized people experiencing healing and deliverance from addiction and other things. And as he poured out all the uh, evidence of what God's work had done. It was just one of those moments where I said, I didn't need to see that personally, but to know that you did a work and answered our urgent, fervent cries years before shows that you had a plan all along and that the urgency of the gospel, it's never wrong for you to be urgent about the gospel. Matter of fact, there may be a day when one of your friends or neighbors or relatives gives their life to Christ and finds out that you're a Christian and, and is probably not going to be very happy with you if you'd never shared the gospel with them. And they realize, I could have gone to hell. You didn't care enough to talk to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to grasp the seriousness of the hour. You will never regret sharing the gospel with somebody. Never. You'll never regret it. Matter of fact, a hundred years from now, very little that you do in this world will matter other than what you did evangelistically and for the kingdom of God. A book by Mark Cahill says, uh, there's one thing you can't do in heaven and it describes evangelism. You ever thought of that? You won't be sharing the gospel to lost people for eternity. You have one chance and it's here and you're never going to regret sharing the gospel with the same urgency with which Jesus did, with which the apostles did, with which Lady Wisdom cries out here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, grasp the seriousness of the hour. Now listen, if you're not in Christ yet, if you're an unbeliever, you've resisted faith in Jesus, you've resisted His call to you to forsake everything and to follow Him, experiencing what you thought was, if I gain the world, and lose my soul, what do I care? You have an opportunity to heed the call of wisdom and Jesus himself, not to be counted with the fools. In Revelation chapter 19, we read that there will be a, a, a great judgment. In, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then at the end days, the very end, after everything is finished, John says, I saw a great white throne and the one who was seated on it. From his presence, earth was gone. Earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And then I saw before me the dead, all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and all these books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in, in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Do you understand what's happening here? At the end times, there's going to be nothing. No terra firma. No earth no sky, no death. Everything is going to be revealed before the presence of God. And it says in verse 15, <clears throat> if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a sobering scene. It's a sobering scene and we often get so enamored with the world and with culture and with possessions and with sitcoms and TV shows, and we, we just lose sight of what's eternal. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, you will be counted among the fools whose name was not written in the book of life. And I say that with as much somberness and urgency as I can muster. Peter said, today is the day of salvation. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Today is the day. Heed wisdom's call to repent and believe in Jesus. That's wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is to repent and believe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, wisdom's call, wisdom's cry, is to heed those words and to believe. It's my prayer that in this room and for those who might hear this message today or later, those who are listening online, those who you're working in their heart even now, I pray that you would give them ears to hear the seriousness of the situation, the seriousness of eternity. I am not a fear-mongering, turn-or-burn, hellfire kind of preacher. Just, it's my role to point one beggar to another beggar and tell them where to find food. And from a previously lost person who heard the gospel and it was life to me, it's my joy to present the opportunity for others to enter into that same life through the same gate. The same gate that's door is always open. Jesus, you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the gate. All others who try to climb in by other ways are thieves and robbers. Lord Jesus, would you cause those who are not yet in faith in you, would you give them the gift of repentance and faith that they may trust in you? I pray today that someone would give their life to you and that we would approach, not just today, but the whole week of Vacation Bible School, all the things that are taking place in our culture and in our lives, that we would approach it with gospel seriousness. Understanding that the days are limited, and that this is one of those times that you might point to in evidence against someone at the great day of judgment. But you heard. But you heard these words. And you did not listen. And in that day, I will laugh at your calamity, says the Lord. Oh, would you please help us 
to have a soft, repentant heart toward you. One that acknowledges the times and one that finds ourselves hidden in you by faith and repentance. Would you let it be so today? In Jesus' name, amen.